Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas. Makalua. The man team. Mega Bears fan. Happy Saturday, Internet, and welcome to yet another episode of the Polycast. This is episode number 381, and I am one of your regular co-hosts, Mega Bears fan, joined by, as usual, Canis Albinus. Hashtag shut up in Portugal. Makalua. Hashtag powered by fizzy, fruity, caffeinated things. And me and team. Ship of Theseus is the only ship I'll ride. No. Thought we were done with that. <laughs> Phil was never done with that. So, hey, speaking of Portugal, Portugal patch, or the patch that gives us all the Portugal things, which, you know, executive summary, do you like trade routes? Because if you're on a map that favors ocean trade routes, you're really going to like Portuguese trade routes. Holy crap. But, <clears throat> so the I Portugal want my patch. Portuguese trade routes now. Uh, Maybe we can actually use Nupchicol appropriately. So we got it and introduced Johnny is the thing I think people called him last time. <laughs> nobody can pronounce this the name. Uh, nobody unless you're uh, actually Portuguese or Brazilian. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm sure our Portuguese listeners yeah. will be able to pronounce it correctly and will Hold have no on. trouble correcting us when we fail. He's going to look it, it up. Inevitably. <clears throat> and, uh, well, Portugal has the now, as Kenneth alluded to, navigation school with Vittoria, and also we've got a zombie defense mode now. Uh, not so much, yay. <clears throat> but to get more specific about the now, uh, that is a naval melee unit, which is replacing the caravel. It starts with one free promotion, less, also less maintenance than the caravel, and has two charges to build the Fatorias, which is the special shipping ports, which those guys are only built in a foreign city's coastal tile next to a luxury or bonus resource. See, when I was playing with Portugal last weekend on our multiplayer game, I kept forgetting about that part. Buy a resource. You can't just spam every single tile. The pronunciation is (sighs) Joao. I almost did that, but then I thought that was wrong. I keep wanting to say Jao instead of Joao. But I seem to have the letters in the wrong order. And sending the trader out to a city with a Vittoria provides Portugal with additional gold in production, which I believe it's plus four and plus one, respectively. Yeah, oh, for... would... it, plus one production, plus four gold, right? Yes, yes. Uh, the Civ unique ability is Casa de India, which significantly increases the yields of international trade la- routes, but limits those routes to cities on the coast or with a harbor. And it also grants trader units additional range and the ability to bark on water tiles as soon as they're unlocked. So you're getting out there quicker and faster, but you, if you wanted to do a little interior building, you can still use the trade routes, but they're not uh, the internal. You can use internal routes within your empire, but you can't do 
on la- all on land, but you can't do that with other nations on like your same continent. Yeah, I think we yeah. were uh, we were worried about that when the when the preview came out was whether or not you could send internal trade routes to your own cities that are landlocked. And uh, based on my brief experimentation this week, the answer appears to be yes, yes, you can. Yes, I had that in the game the other day where I'd. <clears throat> I don't know if I... I can't remember why I had to look at it. Oh, it's because I had a landlocked city, actually. And I, so obviously I can't send any other routes except to other places in the same uh, continent. But that was fine. That worked for that city. Uh, the other. Da, 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 da. And uh, leader unique. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, uh, it, it does specifically say, I haven't had a chance to test this specifically, but it says that the uh, the foreign trade route has to go to a city on the coast or with a harbor, but it doesn't necessarily say that that route has to go overseas. So I'm wondering if the shortest distance between the cities is still a land route, even though the, both cities are on the coast, if it will still send it over land, like if they're just like across a peninsula from each other, you know, if it'll just go over land uh-huh. instead of sailing all the way around the peninsula. That was uh, something that I did not get a uh, an opportunity to test, but that seems to be how the ability is worded. Yeah, I might have a say from the multiplayer game and be able to load it and look at that. But I do remember the one time when I was dealing with the landlocked city, it was definitely only to other Portuguese cities. I I suspect it's still going to be over the ocean because because the the the, the <clears throat> excuse me the traders are a little faster anyway, so the route's still going to be shorter. Well, I don't think they move any faster. They just go farther. I think they still move one tile per turn. Range. Okay. Yeah, they just have longer range. In Civ Six, the traders have a range, and they always use the take the same amount of time to finish a trade route. So they will move as fast as they have to to finish the route within the allotted number of turns. So if it's like a sixty turn, if it's like a sixty tile trade route, they'll move pretty fast. Oh, okay. Huh. I think I did not know. All right, so a uh, leader unique ability is Porta do Cerco, which grants all units, all units, not just the naval units, but increased sight. Also increases your trade route capacity whenever Portugal meets a new civ and provides open borders with all city-states. Yeah, because I could tramp around all across the city-states. I didn't have to worry about that. And as far as my recollection from last weekend was, it was, I think it was only with the proper civs, not the city-states, because there was... Enough city-states on the map that I probably should have had even more, but actually, I still only had 15 to 20, somewhere in there. Which How many cities for- did you have? About, I think I ended up with eight or nine, yeah. somewhere. If you had eight cities, and you were in a game with eight civs, you should have had about 16 trade routes. Okay, yeah, because I was, I was, that was one of the things we were talking about before it came out. It's like, did that include the city-states, but... Based off of the one whole game I've played with Portugal, I think we can say that did not happen. Because there are usually like 10 to 15 city-states. That would be kind of ridiculous. Yeah, well, even the city excuse me, even the routes you get with Portugal at this point are also kind of ridiculous. Because we got into... It's a multiplayer game. It goes faster. It wasn't too far into ADs, and I was doing five or 600 gold a turn when we we ended the... I, I, I was... Multiple times I was sending out the better part of a thousand gold to people here, even before that, when it was still only like 200 gold a turn or 300 somewhere in there earlier, I was sending out the gift baskets of gold here, go fight things. That's, Buy a, some units. that's a phrase I haven't heard in a while. 
Dan in the gift baskets. <laughs> uh, we, should, other... uh, we should set up a video where we test which makes more money, Portugal or Mansa Musa. Ooh. Gold fight. Uh, Portugal's other unique building is the Navigation School, which replaces the university and increases production toward naval units in each, each city that's built it. You know, just that particular city, not all your cities. Also increases the city's science yields for every two coastal or lake tiles within the city's borders and more great admiral points. Just what they... Let's see. I don't know. So, yes. So, I highly... Victoria. Victoria, didn't I not do... I thought I did the Victoria, but... I think you did, but I think it was at a different point in this list. Oh, yeah. Earlier when we were talking about the the now. But as a reminder, by you can build it in the water on a coastal tile next to a luxury or bonus resource in a foreign city. You can't spam it to your own cities. And that does include city-states. I tested that. Yes, it definitely does, because there was a couple of city-states that were close by. I'm like, here, have a choice. Oh, look, now my trade now my trade routes are worth, like, nearly 30 gold. And uh, because the leader gets open borders automatically with city-states, mm-hmm. uh, right? Like, it's it's yeah. easy to do that. The, the hard part, of course, is uh, city-state um, tile annexation is based on the number of envoys that gets sent there. So if there's not a lot of envoys getting sent to that city-state, its borders might not expand onto the water, so there might not be an available tile for you to actually place your Fatoria. And that can suck, because there's <laughs> nothing at all that you can do short of, you know, waiting to earn more envoys and then pumping them into that city-state, hoping that it annexes the one water tile that you need to build your Fatoria. Yeah, so anyone can you no not that ta- no 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 not that one. This one over here, please. And by default, I don't think empty water tiles are high priority for the auto spread. Right, and I don't think you can build the Fatoria on top of a resource. It has to be adjacent to a resource. Uh, maybe you can put it on top of like fish or something and it just removes the fish, but it would have to be adjacent to another resource in, in order for that to be possible. So if you have like two fish next to each other, maybe you can put it on one of the fish. I don't know, uh, but the I'd resource the resource also can be, be on land, which which helps a little bit. That would be major trolling if you could get rid of somebody's resource by settling. Well, yeah, like, w- one of the things about the strategy for the Fatorias is going to be uh, because it buffs trade routes to that city. You typically are only going to want to put one in the range of any given city because otherwise you're just giving free extra yields to a potential rival like i guess for city states it doesn't matter spam them as much as you want but for other sieves one per city otherwise you're just giving extra gold in production to a potential rival the exception to that however could be because Fatorias cannot be removed if you want to troll them you can spam them in places to prevent that rival player from potentially building valuable late game water infrastructure like no water park for you no Sydney Opera House for you <laughs> no Statue of Liberty for you just put them in places where those sorts of things would be legal or where it's the only possible place that they can be put and the AI will never be able to build those things because they can't tear down the Fatoria in order to put them there and in the co-op game it was actually beneficial for me to go and put fatorias and people who were close enough to need to trade with because they got gold and i got gold everybody wins 
Yeah, you just don't want to put down more than one no. unless you're being trolly because, like I said, you don't get <laughs> – you, as Portugal, do not get any extra benefit no. from having, like, four Feitorias in one city's borders because you just get one – as far as I know, you only get one boost to tr- the trade route. So you're just giving them free yield. And you have to build extra nows to build lots of them, so. Yeah, that's that's true, too. And I don't think there's any way to increase the number of charges that you get on a now, so you just have to build more now. Build more now, now? Yep. <laughs> and, well, just based on what I've experienced, what other people have been experiencing playing it, I suspect when we get the April patch coming, that they probably, they're, they're going to have to tweak some things with Portugal to not make it silly overpowered i mean it's still intended to be overpowered in terms of trade but that that that, that felt last weekend to be a little ludicrous how much money i had but then <laughs> like, again not- we also all thought that they needed to nerf uh grand columbia and the nerf that they ended up doing was like the one thing that none of us thought actually needed to be nerfed which was the yeah. uh, hacienda yeah it's like we're not using that what what well, you're using it. It's just not the thing that makes them incredibly strong. Yeah. No, it's the things with the generals and having the extra movement point. That's like. Yeah, it's like having every military bonus you could possibly want in the game all in one sieve. So, based on that, what? They're going to cut down the Fatoria to only plus three gold or something? Yeah, probably. Well, I mean, you know, for Portugal. Well, yeah, that would be funny because then that just hurts the players besides Portugal. They'll probably buff it. It'll be 10 gold. <laughs> But it only gives oh, Portugal four. Oh, oh, gives the other... Oh, that's make, make everybody else rich. Give everybody a Cerro de Pazze. You'd be pretty popular in multiplayer games. Please, please, Portugal, come build things for me and send me trade routes, please. I want your money. So other non-zombie things we got in this pack uh, <clears throat> was a wetlands map script. Which is marshes, 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 and marshes. The Torre de Belém World Wonder, which it used to, in in real life, it's a gateway to Lisbon in Portugal. It grants additional gold and great admiral points and international trade routes embarking from the city. You receive additional gold for every luxury resource at the destination. And when it's constructed, any cities owned by the civilization but located in other continents receive the cheapest building they can construct at that time. I should have built that the other day. <laughs> and, uh, oh boy. Etemenaki. Etemenaki? Uh, it's a Babylonian ziggurat that grants additional science fields every turn, as well as bonus science and population, not population, and production to all floodplains in the city and in the city that builds it and marsh tiles in that civilization. I think I saw Potato McWhiskey do something crazy with that in Portugal when this, right after the pack first came out. I'm sure it would be nice on the wetland script. That's what he did. He took yeah. the wetland script and that, I think it was the wetland script and that in Portugal and was like, well, that's just ludicrous. That's the next week's topic. Oh. <laughs> Oops, sorry. Got ahead. Next week, huh? Well, not next week. The week after. <laughs> oh, and I forgot. Up with Portugal, their agenda which is called Navigator's Legacy. They try to explore the map. They like civs that have explored more than other civs, and they dislike people who stay at home and never see the rest of the world. So explore more if you see Portugal. Know the map. I should, I should have no problems tripping over that. 
<laughs> I will explore Portugal's territory but then very you'll thoroughly. Get other <laughs> uh, listen, it's Johnny, not his girlfriend. Joao. I know. Joao. Yes, Joao. we heard you, Johnny. Joao. <laughs> Joao. Wow, Johnny wow, will wow. like it. So, hey, why are we talking about repetitive things? Zombies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's nice to see zombies in uh, more games. It's pretty uncommon to see them uh, these days, you know. It's not like there's a whole series running on television that's all about zombies and after the zombies and, you know, other people trying to avoid the zombies or anything like that. Well, you know, yeah. they're not really zombies because not one of them uses the Z word. And they're, like, not in any games at all, so it's nice to see them finally. That's right. They're totally legally distinct. <laughs> Looks like a zombie, shuffles like a zombie, you know. Anyway, the zombie defense game mode is a thing that you can turn on in a regular game where you can, I suppose, I, uh, dead, they do not stay dead. They will rise from the ashes of war. They prey upon your lands. Basically... They're coming up from after battles and units dying, and I think they generate somewhat sort of like barbarians a little bit as well. But it's added some also defensive structures to the map, so you can try and keep them away. They can't pillage improvements, but they will go go after any other units and try to attack them, and your city center and your districts. <clears throat> uh, it's builders and military engineers can make some traps, some walls, and there's some, also some city projects. Uh, if a unit's destroyed by a zombie, it will come back up as a zombie. It's a, it's, a, it's a small chance for them to start off from a battle, a normal battle between a battle between two normal units. Is when it's a zombie kills a normal unit. Well, that unit's coming back as a zombie. Uh, they can also get more units by lo- if they if their attack lowers the city's population. Well, more zombies. And for every. Every zombie that's killed somewhere in the world, the remaining ones and new ones come out stronger. But I just know how that makes sense. They're halfway across the map, and I kill off this one unit, and suddenly they, all these units are stronger. I guess that's meant to keep an escalating threat thing going, but still. Troll the, <laughs> the other players by killing a bunch of zombies and farming them. This is true. Hmm. I'm sure somebody will experiment with that in the near future, and we'll all find out about it in the video. Uh, there's two traps. There's a normal trap, or a, a trap you can build early on. It's unlocked with construction, uses a builder charge, doesn't prevent units moving through it, but if they sit there, they'll keep getting damaged. And when you get to ballistics and you have to use a military engineer, it's got a modernized trap. I guess it's got metal spiky things instead of wood spiky things. And then the two respective types of barricades is one that does minor damage to, but also exerts control, uh, zones, <coughs> excuse me, zone of control on, which that comes with military engineering and uses a builder charge. And there's a reinforced barricade that comes with rifling, has to use the military engineer to do it, but it does does better damage, still has a zone of control. It does not prevent them. You, like the other ones, they can move through it, but it's going to slow them down. And it says the, also the existing infrastructure type things have been updated to 
also provide additional options. The fort, the Roman fort, the Great Wall, the Vampire Castle, the Maori Pa, and the Alakazar. That was uh, from the Vikings scenario. And the city projects, you can, you, you can uh, build one in your holy site to turn undead, which will actually let you control the zombies in your city's territory for 15 turns when it gets done. But you could use that to get them off your lawn, or you could go use them to attack your neighbor next door and make more zombie problems. Phil finally has a use for holy sites. <laughs> sure. Holy sites, yes. Uh, those things I capture? Yeah, they're good. <laughs> well, the campuses that he does build can do a dark signal, which, once again, you're going to get control of the zombies currently in that city's territory, but this time it lasts 30 turns. And there's a new city center spy action for a zombie outbreak. It has a chance to spawn a zo- one zombie per worked tile in the target city. Ooh, if that goes off in a high-pop city, that could get nasty. Little incentive, I guess, to use specialists, which are otherwise complete crap in Civ Six. <laughs> if your city is over than, like, five or something, I don't know. Well, no, five's not enough. I know. Big city, more specialists, less people working tiles. And then the regular update stuff, well, obviously, because we have Portugal, I had to replace replace Lisbon. It's been replaced with Mogadishu. Uh, Fixed an issue where the production was not being added to holy sites and captured cities when having the worth worth ethic... Boy, I'm having that kind of trouble today. Work ethic religious belief. Um, Macedon's ability, Hellenistic fusion, is only going to trigger when a city is first conquered. It was previously apparently triggering for districts built after the city was occupied. And there was an incorrect yield text for the Cliffs of Dover in some tooltips. I don't know. Most, I don't see. I'm trying to see if there's anything really big in here. The one thing that I noticed was under the Barbarians clan, I did not see a fix for the Ottoman uh, Barbary Corsair being able to get infinite gold. Oh, I didn't see that either. So that is presumably still in the game. That might take them a while to fix, because uh, that's not like in, that might not be an easy fix. Hopefully, it does get fixed at some point, though. Because <laughs> now anybody who even just randomly rolls Ottomans like, well, time to go farm some gold. Apparently, there was a bug in multiplayer where uh, Menelik of Ethiopia was not showing up in people's uh, multiplayer game scenarios. <laughs> That's a weird... You mean like the game wouldn't select or the game would not show the... It, it said would not be available for base game multiplayer scenarios. So I'm assuming that would mean you load it into a scenario and then under the leader select screen, Menelik was just not showing up. Okay, all right. Gotcha. I'm, ass- I'm assuming that's what it means based on the, the wording here. Obviously, I, I never saw that happen. Uh, there was a base game fix to... There was an issue where players couldn't trade great works or relics in the deal menu. So that's apparently that particular issue. We don't know if there's other ones, but now you can trade freely. Yeah, some things are specific to console things. I don't... Yeah, I'm trying to skim through quickly, but a lot of this is like small fixes. And it's a lot of fixes. Apparently the PS4 version was having a problem where uh, retiring from the game would cause it to crash. So I guess, I guess the game retires from you. 
Yeah, game is retired from you. You can't fire me. I'm firing you. You can't rage quit. I'm rage quitting. Yeah. Activate rage quit mode. Apparently that's what the PS4 was doing. Ah, uh, yes, the classic various text fixes. <laughs> I know they had a th- they had a thread in on Civ Fanatics all about things they wanted fixed. Things oh. the Civ Fanatics users wanted fixed, or yes. things Firaxis wanted fixed. Both. Was it just the text things, or was it all these other things? It was all text things, all the text errors ah, that they noticed. Because there's a lot of text, and you would have to go. It's very be very easy to miss some misspelling here and there, especially when you start reading through a really long file of text. Oh yeah, you start patching and changing like Civ and leader and unit abilities and stuff like that. Like you got to go back through the Civilopedia and all the tool tips. It's yeah, it's a lot. Uh, one thing in the AI it was AI's value of tech will be limited by the number of units it can build. It's like, it's like, okay, so now are they going to look at how many like tanks they could build and see, I have this much oil, which will support this much tank. So don't build past X tanks. Cause that would be great. I mean, to your advantage when they overbuild, but at the same time, uh, speaking of AI unit building behavior, has anybody uh, seen uh, the AI using air units yet, which was like supposed to be added a couple patches ago? I haven't reached that point in the game yet. I keep winning too fast. <laughs> I was going to say it's the same problem with the multiplayer is that we get over usually before we get to air. Yeah, same here. <laughs> haven't gotten that far yet. Yeah. We, we, we know what we're doing too well. We don't get to air. I guess could check by doing an advanced start. We already got air. Let's see if they'll use it. That's right. All the multiplayer games should be advanced start. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure there's somebody who would disagree with you about that. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I think he's not be fine. here anymore. <laughs> right now, that would disagree. <laughs> Riggedy act. <laughs> I think that's about it for patching, unless you guys have spotted anything else interesting. This seems pretty mundane for now. Got that big patch coming up at the end of this month. Yeah, which will probably be an even bigger list of things and stuff changed and goodness knows what else. For our next topic, we're going to talk about briefly the Civilization VI World Cup, which is put on by, I believe it's the the We Play Civ developers and people that are on that website. Is that who it is, I think? Or Civ Players League. And um, they've been doing team matches for the last couple of weeks, and they are just now starting the second phase of the tournaments. And we recommend that you guys go watch them if you feel like watching some multiplayer Civ. They have have, uh, French and Russian language casting as well, and it's all on Twitch, so... Apparently they've got a mod on that tries to balance the game for multiplayer a bit better. Hmm, I would be curious to know what that mod does. Yeah. Me as well. uh, I wonder if it's available on the uh, Steam Workshop or if it's like a mod that they... You can actually navigate to it from from the site in question. But you can also just look it up on Steam. I, I have it open here, but it's not. It's got a full change log, okay. But it's a full feature list. Does it at least have like a description of what it like 
tries to do in general. Okay, the change log is the is the description of how it's a description of what has been changed. It's not like just a patch thing, I guess, because it's got like lists for every civilization. There's a lot of stuff in here. Yeah, this would be a topic unto itself. I don't know that we would wanna. <laughs> but this is worth giving a look at our feature point. Oh, it looks like they've got links to a handful of mods. Yeah. Better balanced game, and then better balanced starts, and then uh, what looks like a couple of UI mods. Yeah. Something like a big overhaul pack that you'd see on uh, in RPG games or something. You know, it's like, we took a few mods, and we did some other tweaks of our own, and this whole package together. You would really need something like this, though, to make it more fair in uh, Civ Six. And if you balance the start in addition to the Civs, then you can actually have something better resembling a competitive environment. Because that just wasn't the original design goal of Civ 6 itself. So it's good to see this being done to this degree. And this is quite comprehensive. It's way more than I can look at and just comment on, <laughs> on how well it is. I, I would trust the experts here uh, to judge this better than I even. I By experts, imagine. I mean the people in the multiplayer games. But yeah, this is this is very comprehensive. I would imagine the Civ Players League has a pretty good handle on what you need to do to be a good Civ Players League. Yeah, for sure. They and in most games, there's always there. like a bit of a divide in terms of like what elite play looks like in single player versus multiplayer. But there's a lot of things that translate between the two. Just because, like, regardless of whether you're trying to win at the earliest uh, date or defeat human opponents like you, you you still need to optimize your yield you still want to research effectively uh you still don't want to throw units away etc so some of the details are going to be different but there's gonna be a lot of things that translate have fun with diplomacy though <laughs> Speaking of diplomacy. Speaking of diplomacy, indeed. So over on Anchor, uh, you can listen to uh, actually quite a few podcasts by developers of the uh, Old World uh, game. And uh, one of them is Soren Johnson, which is the one we are covering today. Uh, And it it goes through uh, a number of things, like how he got to be where he is, some of his uh, experience with previous games, um, and then some of personal life stuff. So there's a lot to lot there if you're interested uh what jumped out to me of course was the discussion towards the middle of the podcast about uh the design constraints around ai and and what a good ai should look like and whatnot um i I guess i disagree less with soren now than on his older uh, powerpoint presentation or whatever about uh, good ai versus fun ai there are some caveats to that but uh, broadly speaking, his argument is that it's okay for there to be asymmetry between the AI and the human player, and that the design of the game needs to factor that. Um, like when you're designing the game, the AI has to be integrated into the design of the other mechanics of the game, and that I definitely agree with. I don't. I only 
half agree with the uh, with with how much asymmetry is okay. It depends on how the game is structured. Because uh, uh, he actually mentioned Into the Breach, uh, seeing people who made Faster Than Light as an, an example of an asymmetric game, and that's very much true. The uh, the bugs are much uh, stronger slash more numerous slash whatever than the human, uh, but that you know they're not really a competitor in an environment like a, uh, a rival civilization would be a competitor in an environment. So. Yeah, there's a trade-off there. So, to what degree do you make the AI a different experience than just a competitor in the game? You have to integrate that in your design. You have to make a choice there, how far you're going to take that. Yeah, as I've said many times on the show in the past, one of my biggest frustrations with the AI difficulty in Civ Six is how front-loaded, uh, well, in the Civ franchise in general, is how front-loaded everything is, and how that... Uh, all but forces certain gameplay styles from the player, whether you like that style or not, and that the AI basically gets diminishing returns from those early game bonuses as the game goes on, because you know the, the uh, human player is like conquering their cities and stuff like that, and turning their bonuses into your bonuses. And in some senses, like it can actually make it easier for the human player as the game goes on, because you're you know conquering more developed cities and. Uh, with more districts and stuff like that already uh, built. I think that's a little bit away from what he was getting at, though. Um, another thing he mentioned is that he like he likes the idea of the multiple victory conditions back when it was made, but thinks that it's probably holding the uh, the turn-based strategy games back these days. And that's something I definitely agree with. We've seen this play out in all the Civ games that have implemented multiple victory conditions is that ultimately some of them are emphasized more than others because when you take for granted that every civ is trying there there isn't you know six victory conditions there's really only one or two uh one being conquest and two maybe something that breaks a tie between nations that struggle to conquer each other in more defensive oriented games uh so he actually is designing old world in a way where there are different like the player has more victory uh, options available than the AI and you won't just like suddenly lose to like the equivalent of an AI random religious victory or culture victory, for example. Yeah, for a long time when I was playing Civ Four, uh I disabled all of the victory conditions except for I th- forget if it, I think it was domination or con I always get it confused whether it's domination or conquest, which was the one where you had to have like sixty percent of the global land area. Domination. And- and 60% of the population, and that included the Landarian population that you had from your vassals. So... Uh, a fraction of it, yes. Oh, was it a, a fraction? Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I really like that a lot, because it, it. I felt like I was... You know, it, it didn't push you to have to pursue this one particular style of play. It was basically grow your civilization however you want, and when you get to the point where you have dominated a majority of the world, you win which is the point where the game should end. Yeah. And it's the same thing with the council victory in uh, the old Master of Orion series. Uh, the way that worked, it was pretty hard uh, to just insta-cheese in diplomatically. You could, I guess. And that cheapened the game maybe a little bit. But for the most part, you had to you had to be in a winning position already before you could win that way. But then once you were in a winning position, you could just end the game with that rather than grinding it out. And it was the same thing with Domination at Civ Yeah. But then Civ Four had wonky stuff. Uh, Apostolic Palaces is one of the, the obvious examples. But I would say even UN and Culture were they would take you away from a, a lot of what <laughs> you would typically do otherwise 
when playing a game of Civ Four, and it really had very little to do with your nation's research strength, uh, size, progression, all that stuff. Like you could win with three cities culture on deity as long as you could convince the AI not to get a color on you, which you very frequently could. And just the the requirements required to play that out versus like winning an AI uh, conquest of the AI on deity, the, the difference is massive. So yeah, you really did have like multiple subsystems there that were already assuming that the AI wasn't going to try. So if you're going to do that, then I agree with Soren that you might as well just make an asymmetric scenario from the start and build that into the design so that the game can be challenging in an interesting way rather than just heaping the AI with loads of stuff and then having it only sort of play the game but not really try to win. Uh, <laughs> if you're going to do that, just just make it more like FTL or whatever where the AI and the human aren't playing the game if you're not going to uh, uphold their trying to play the same game anyway. Yeah, because but, a, a human player can see things are trending in a different direction and change their strategy mid-game and go for a different victory. But if the AI tries to do that, it just is like having an ADHD moment where I'm going to do this for a little bit. No, I should switch to this victory. I should do this for a minute. No, I should do this victory. Switch over here. And you can see that sometimes that it's it, like the game, I think, in Civ 6 will tell you that so-and-so is no longer going for a science victory, which is based on some other stats. But the AI yeah. can't focus in as well as a human can to... to I'm primarily going for domination, but maybe I want to try to see if I can win diplomatic on the side, you know. Even back in Sephora, it would it flip-flop between culture and other things, yeah. uh, often to its detriment. Uh, Sula did a huge series of games for just AI playing AI, and multiple times you could observe an AI that really should have won if it just kept to its course, and then it just randomly decided to go culture and stop trying, and then it would lose. And that was against other AI. Now, <laughs> this is something we're seeing because of the quality of the AI in the games we've played. If we have like machine learning AI or whatever, it's unwinnable, even if it has no bonuses. Like we would never beat <laughs> something like that. But uh, I don't know that that would make the game better either. I think you'd have to have some asymmetry at that point because the AI would just outplay everybody. It would be more challenging, but it wouldn't be very fun necessarily for the human player. Yeah, you'd have to you'd have to have bonuses, and then even with bonuses, you probably have to be an expert to win uh, with the quality of uh, what we're getting, what we're seeing with machine learning in other games, uh, stuff like Alpha Star, uh, Alpha Chess. Like those things are beating the very best players at their respective games and doing so handily without effort. Uh, the StarCraft one is a major eye opener to me. That tells me that in pretty much the majority of games that exists now, if they wanted to apply machine learning to it and invested enough resources to make that happen, they could put something into the product that would be unwinnable to the player. Because uh, Alpha Star was playing on the ladder, and it was beating the best players in StarCraft 2 easily. Easily, at, at, with its best agents. <laughs> with a constraint on APM, and with only information available that would be available to the player. It, just, it was still handily trouncing everybody. So that's impressive. But I don't know that that would make the future of gaming very fun if that's the route they went. So yeah, I, I think we, if you're going to do asymmetry, then do it right. And I think for any game, any game, it is very important to have the AI developers be in sync with the mechanical developers and whatnot, because there's just there's realistic constraints on what you can do. And when that isn't factored, you get all kinds of nonsense that we see in some of the Civ games. We definitely see it all the time in Paradox titles, where 
the AI doesn't know how to handle the mechanics that are put into the game at all. Like, there's no consideration for that. Or there, I shouldn't say no, but there's minimal consideration for that that leads to predictable problems on a reliable, and, recurring basis, you know, because that isn't factored sufficiently. So I definitely agree with Thorin there. And it certainly doesn't help in the case of Paradox that they're updating you know, the game so often and in such large ways that it's hard to rewrite your AI to accommodate the new play. You know, like, for instance, removing all of the uh, faster-than-light options in Stellaris in an update. Like... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I understand why they did that. But then when you do that, you have to understand the realities of what, what kind of burden you're going to be putting on your AI team versus design team and factor that. Like, right. I think Paradox over and over and over and over again adds more features than they can support. Yeah, and with Civ, we get with big updates when we like when we do a full expansion and we get a new major level mechanic and usually the first question or one of the first ones one of us will ask is well does the ai understand how to use this because there's some things we get that are very powerful in human hands but i you look at the and how you have to work it and, the, and you're like how is the ai going to get how to use this and even with simple things like uh, like leader and civilization unique bonuses, like does does the AI have any comprehension of how to utilize these bonuses so that they can actually take advantage of the strengths of, of their civilization and leader? Yeah, it's tough. But then to what degree does the AI's lack of understanding and using that detract from the game? I would argue it does, but I don't know that it's... I don't know. I'm not as confident in saying that it does buy enough that it, on balance it wasn't worth adding. So, yeah, it's worth adding because it um, gives entertainment for the human player because you have something new to try and it keeps you engaged in the game. But it doesn't necessarily make the AI super weaker. It adds a few more cycles maybe to what it's doing, but it's not. It's not handicapping the AI to not understand it. Although I just I just wonder how much better the game could be if it was integrated better. Yeah, but you like you don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know if anybody knows that, even in the industry. Like you yeah, can you, guess, but unless you have empirical data to back it, <laughs> you're just guessing. And it's hard to separate out factors like which contributes to a game's success versus what doesn't. Yeah, if you, if you could find a, a medium in between. The AI we have now and the machine learning, there's got to be some sort of spot in there where the AI could be a little more sophisticated and not take up so much resources on an average PC and yet still be able to respond to some of this. Well, even with AI learning, I think you can still have adjustable difficulty settings. It would just be a thing where it would the AI would be programmed to not make the optimal decision all the time. It would know the optimal decision. It just wouldn't necessarily make it. Like how Chum chess engines can be set to blunder uh, with a frequency comparable to a given rating of player. I guess, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you have robust machine learning in place, like that's even something where you could implement that uh, to be dynamic, so that it the AI will get harder or easier. You know, rubber banding sort of depending on. Uh, on how well the human player is doing, so that the game always feels competitive. But I don't like rubber banding, or unless you mean by the quality of the AI's decisions, rather. Than right. No. Yeah. That, that's what I mean. Like the if if the AI is running away with the game, it could tone down its play to let the human player remain competitive and not just rage quit. You know, so give you a challenge to overcome, uh, 
as opposed to just abandoning the game or vice versa. If you're running away, then the AI is like, hey, time to step up our game. The competitor in me doesn't like that, but a lot of games do something like that already and have found success in it, but it just feels dishonest to me. So I won't endorse it, but I mean, it's being done. For well, reason, so you'd, you'd want that to probably be a setting or an option that can be disabled on top of just having regular difficulty levels. So yeah, I, I do wonder this from time to time when it comes to various features in a game. You know, like how important is any one piece of the game uh, towards its overall success? For example, if like Civ Six was as good as now, or even maybe slightly better, but it's just that awful music or awful sound effects. But otherwise, it was like really good. How many sales would you lose on that? Like, is there a model for that at all? <laughs> Could people make a good guess as to how much that would change the outcome of the title's performance? I well, don't know. I'd be surprised if anybody knew. Well, given the vitriol that some people had for the art style of Civ Six when it was first announced and released, and considering that, uh, as we're going to talk about uh, shortly, how well the game has performed in sales, I'm guessing it probably was not that big of a factor. Yeah, but then again, like, it, let's say the art style was some theoretical optimal. It's hard to say because people have different tastes. But let's just say that they had instead chosen whatever art style is the most preferable on average. What's the difference between its performance in our history versus if they'd chosen that art style? Again, like, how how do you even make an estimate for something like that? I don't know that you can. Other than like trying stuff and then seeing, I guess. And That's I would not like easy data to get. And I would like to say for the record that I personally do not have any problems with Civ Six's art style. I think the game looks great. I mean, yeah, for me, it's a strategy game. What I what I care about is the presentation of information, and that it like doesn't look like a trash can. I don't have high standards for the graphics. If anything, what annoys me the most is just that a lot of information isn't easily available as it could be, or that it takes more inputs to access it. But, you know, I've, I've touched on that to death. That's not a graphics thing though. That's a UI thing to some degree, but there are some graphic things like the very common meme of, uh, is this a hill or not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that... You don't have the tile yields on. Uh, good luck with that. So, I mean, to some degree, it can be a graphics thing. Like graphics can interfere a little bit. Because the graphics themselves do convey some information about what's going on in the game. And if they're sufficiently bad, it, it can detract from your experience. Yeah, but, but usually that's not a serious factor. But usually. compared to, to Civ Five, Civ Six does communicate a hell of a lot more information on the uh, you know graphics than uh, Civ Five did. I don't know. I've never quantified that. That'd be interesting. Well, the fact that every piece of infrastructure is a you know 3D graphic on the map uh, is a by itself a huge upgrade that's I true think. but if like you just turn tile yields on how much difference is there in practice i don't know you, you might be right yeah, Civ five is my it. least favorite of the modern titles for several reasons yeah you didn't have to find some way to like you would almost have to scroll through their city list to see if they'd built x or y whereas in Civ five you just zoom in close on the map and go oh they've got that you know right and yeah, I mean, Civ has never, I mean, Civ has had the pretense of lack of having symmetry, but there, there's never been symmetry between player and AI in any of the Civ titles, except maybe the early ones. I forget exactly what they did, but yeah, Civ 3 and on, no. Especially not if you raise difficulty, but even if you don't, 
the AI is not quite playing the same game. Yeah, you know, not in trying to win, and not in, in terms of what information and bonuses are available to it, even on the like most neutral settings. So yeah, I guess factor it and try to make it more fun. But then the other concern is how that impacts multiplayer, or if you have a multiplayer at all. But most games do, and uh, most people want multiplayer. So you would then need to have effectively two different games, one for single player and multiplayer. That's non-trivial. I'm not saying you can't do it. Certainly like games like Call of Duty do it, but uh, <laughs> and mileage may vary to what degree that makes it for a good game, but they are certainly different experiences. Well, let's talk about a couple of other little things. These are going to be short topics, but uh, there was an article today, or a few days ago, on PC Games N. I don't know exactly what the N stands for, but there was a interview with Anton Stranger, who is the d- director for, or the designer for the DLCs for Civ Six, and he said that the numbers show that Brave New or the the new Frontiers expansion pass provided more new player action than either of the two prior expansions. So people wow. seem to like the new Frontier Pass in terms of hard numbers. And normally it would be at a disadvantage given the game's age, which also is mentioned in the article. Yeah. So yeah, that is interesting. Something to do maybe with the fact that it's a a constant feed of small little things instead of you getting the big expansion and going through all its things and getting tired of it quickly. I don't know. This was after release data, right? So you'd still expect to attract more interest with more stuff going on, right? Unless the things added in and the new Frontier Pass were just more attractive uh, to new players than the things added in the previous expansions. I mean, it could be, yeah, a lot of things that people have asked for for a really long time in terms of, like, you know, the civilizations being offered and stuff like that. And it's like, yay, that's finally in the game. I'm going to check it out now. And then the article ends with a strong indication that they have not decided what they're actually going to do next. So maybe they haven't decided if there's going to be another season pass or if they're going to do Civ 7 next. Which is... PR speak because we know they've already started Civ 7 because game design de- dictates that it will have started three years before it's announced. So, well, or at least whatever the next game is going to be. If you know, it might not necessarily be Civ 7, it might be a different title, like you know, they, they did Beyond Earth before and stuff like that. So, they it could be something else, yeah. but yeah, more than likely, I probably could still a Civ see 7. the success of something like this extending the life of a game, though. Like if things are still selling well, they might not be as inclined to push out a new title that competes with it until the numbers start dying off. Well, I remember it was uh, what was it like Marvel's Avengers and other live service games like that. We're talking about you know ten year life and Anthem games like that. We're talking about ten year life cycles. You know, in the hype leading up to the release of the game, and then of course they both flopped and are probably uh, yeah, Anthem. I think is already dead. EA's announced they're not gonna. <laughs> continue to support the game and they're canceling uh the big patches that were supposed to fix the game and i would not be surprised if marvel's avengers goes the same way but uh civ 6 is going what on five six years now it was, i think it came out in 2016 yeah, yeah. so yeah and i mean it's not unheard of like ck2 had a long run like that eu4 is looking like it'll hit 10 years before we get a new one so yeah 
Yeah, you have more success with niche, long-term success with niche titles like this because there's not so many competing titles to uh, distract player, pull, you know, pull players' attention <laughs> away. You know, there's a well, new there's a new open world live service game coming out. You know, every other month for uh, for people to drop their old game for. So there's not very many turn-based said, strategies. We are seeing more turn-based strategy cropping up now, including old world. So, That's true. Fraxis may have to step up its game. Yeah, competition yep. is healthy. Well, I'm hoping for these uh, competitors to be good. Early 2020s is the new uh, strategy renaissance or something? It would be nice. Well, I'll believe it when I see it, but yeah. I want to see it. So let, yes. let's see it, yes. <laughs> I will say, though, that this uh, news does sound like it might bode poorly for people who are hoping for more traditional expansion packs to continue. Yeah, probably. Because it means maybe now that doesn't happen. If these were that much more successful, you know, in terms of player engagement and uh, uh, dollars, you know, spent on the game, then, uh, yeah, we we might not see full expansion packs for Civ Seven. We might just see two or three season passes with this uh, monthly drip feed of new content. And I hope that's not the case, because I have always thought that the Civ games have had an excellent, like, model for uh, for expansions. Yeah, I think we'll get a mix of both, personally. I hope so. But maybe instead of two expansions, it's one expansion and two DLC passes. But we'll see. And then our second uh, minor topic is from the regular PC Gamer, which I believe is a magazine, but this is the internet version. And it's just a little piece that's talking about how Without civilization, PC gaming would look very different. And its general thesis is that civilization basically built the turn-based strategy into the model that most of the games that use it now now use. Um, and also have infected a lot of turn-based strategies as well. Yeah, I mean, certainly other turn-based stuff at the same time were very influential as well. Uh, here's my Magic series, for example. But yeah, I think it's fair to say that without any of those, gaming would look pretty different in terms of turn-based strategy. Although, I, if we're talking about uh, early to mid-90s or even late-90s gameplay for turn-based strategy, I would still give the title over to either Here's my Magic or the Warlord series. Which really, like... <laughs> those of you born... <laughs> On this side of the century, Mark, or probably aren't familiar with just how good the Warlord series really was in the 90s and how ahead of its time it was. But uh, yeah, it was incredible. And I would argue way better than the early Civ iterations. But the, uh, over time, that flip-flopped, and Warlords kind of stopped even being turn-based strategy, and then uh, Civ got better. <laughs> and uh, most of those older ones don't even exist anymore. The, the Heroes of Might and Magic series is. A shell of its former self. Yeah, we're just going to pretend it stopped after five. <laughs> what, you mean so you're that... not going to mention the ones that don't exist? Which ones? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I can't remember them. I mean, you had a good run, though. You know, five. And five is pretty good. Your memory is suddenly failing. I just can't remember. What was that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of it just comes down to how the companies are structured. 
Because I feel like if the, uh, the, the like the people who were part of SSG had continued making turn-based strategy games like Warlords, it would, they would still be great today. But they went on to other projects in different game genres or sometimes left the game development entirely. So, yeah, you're, you're, when your best talent leaves, you get a different-looking company. Uh, well, that even happened to Blizzard eventually. There's also circumstances where, you know, very few game companies only make one game. And if your other games flop, you invested so much into them, that can uh, that can kill the company. Like, isn't yeah. that what happened with the, uh, uh, what was it, the uh, Interplay, the company that made the original Fallout games? Or even if you're, you don't necessarily get bankrupt, but then you get to this point where you have to sell it off to a bigger company, and then the bigger company totally changes what you do. EA in a yeah. lot of places. Yeah, EA has that track record of buying small independent developers, rolling them into EA, then forcing them to make a game that's not in their wheelhouse. Uh, a case in point, again, uh, Anthem was made by the Bioware people, which are the Mass Effect and uh, Star Wars Old Republic guys. They make, you know, grand sci-fi RPG in the Dragon Age 2, right? Yes. Uh, so not, not explicitly sci-fi, but, you know, they make these grand action RPG games and then they were tasked with making a friggin destiny clone and you know they just didn't know how to do that because that's not their wheelhouse <laughs> to be Epic fair they didn't exactly but... know how to make mass effect after the third one either <laughs> oh that was that was more to do with the story side people getting into a kerfluffle here's this guy i maintain that this. andromeda was not as bad as people thought it was there was a knee-jerk reaction to a lot of like graphical issues in that game that you know became memed it had an unfortunate bug right at release and it made it have horrific faces but once that was fixed it was fine yeah like it's it's crazy to me that like mass effect kind of died with andromeda but like every assassin's creed game that's come out since like what black since after black flag has had similar horrible problems at launch but somehow assassin's creed keeps recovering and keeps releasing a new game every year it's a shame since the ending to Mass Effect 3 was so good. <laughs> That's what I was trying to get to because there was one guy in the beginning who had an idea of how to art, do the story arc across the three things and then they got into a creative uh, disagreement and so he left and then they had to do their own thing. So they were building on a top, they built a different story on top of it and that's how you get to the, the three colors ending in Mass Effect. So but we're getting so- a Mass Effect 5 now, so... Yes, we'll have to see. Yeah, sure, it'll EA... be 20, 25 before we get it, but... It'll yeah. be at least as good as the newer Halos. Yeah, and, and that's... I mean, it, it's good. It's good that the reaction and criticism of Anthem uh, actually caused EA to say, hey, maybe we should let this developer go back to making the games that they're good at making, instead of just shutting them down like they did with, you know, Visceral Studios and uh, however many other studios that, you know, made mm-hmm. one flop, and then the whole studio was canned. Well, that's exactly what happened to the studio that made Andromeda. They don't exist anymore. Yeah, like, they that's got, unfortunate. They got canned before they even finished Andromeda, really. Yeah, and that also is what happens when you outsource you know, an IP to a different developer instead of letting the developers who made the IP successful continue to make that game. They uh, made a farm studio, basically. Took the one person responsible for the ending and put him in charge of the new game and took everyone else off of it, like, that was going to end well. 
Well, I, I guess an analogous situation kind of has worked well with the Civ, where a lot of times the designer of the next game was a modder or expansion developer for the previous game. So, well, yeah, but that's that's by design. They do that on purpose. Every Civ, every main series Civ game has a new designer. That's how it, how it's always been. I'm wondering, did Sid not was he not for both one and two? Nope, Brian Reynolds did Civ 2. That's right, okay. I think they were both credited, but yeah, Reynolds, I think, did most of the work. All right, then. This has been Polycast episode 381. Thank you for joining us. I'm the mean team, and I was joined by Canis Albinus. One of these days, we're going to have to write a memo. Makalua. Oh boy, time to go back to being frustrated at car searches. Yay. And Mega Bears fan. My tortoise has woken up from hibernation, which means the long, grueling summer is upon me. Whee! Do you have a tortoise? Yep. Civilization 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 Sound Clips, copyright Take-Two Interactive. Copyright the Polycast at thepolycast.net.